0: There is no other way to get universal health coverage than by public financing. So that whole principle that everyone should be covered and without financial burden of any sizable nature. This is the principle of universal health coverage. In this case, for instance, with COVID, none is safe before everyone is safe, which illustrates that we have to spread the knowledge, otherwise we cannot overcome the crisis.
1: We don't have a proper holistic public health system. It is being talked about now more than ever. We intend to do it. We're coping with COVID, but we need to move forward. You need the public financing in order to move forward. And that's why health ministers, even in African countries have committed to targets of public financing. They just haven't met them. We need to recognize that there just needs to be more encouragement and support for the economic and political importance of strengthening health systems, not just the health support. You're
2: listening to a special series of the Finding Humanity podcast with the elders, a group of leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada and I'm proud to be joined by my co-host, Mary Robinson. Mary is a former President of Ireland, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and Chair of the Elders. Together, we will unpack critical social and political issues and learn from the experiences of former presidents and prime ministers, UN officials, Nobel Peace Laureates, Freedom Fighters, and human rights champions. COVID-19 has exposed the acute vulnerabilities of our deeply interconnected and globalized world. No country, regardless of its size, wealth, or technological sophistication can tackle this crisis alone. As we all remain vulnerable to this deadly virus, we've dedicated this episode to discuss the more effective and equitable health systems that we need in response to COVID and future pandemics. We'll first look at the role of universal health coverage and how it can play a critical role in tackling future threats. Then, we'll put a lens on how our leaders are navigating the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and how they can do it better. For vulnerable communities, including those caught up in conflict, we'll also discuss what better health systems require and how can we get there. To explore these topics, Mary and I are joined by her fellow elder, Dr. Gru Harlem-Brentland, Dr. Brundtland was the first female prime minister of Norway and was former director general of the World Health Organization. She now co-chairs the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. In September 2019, she addressed a United Nations Leaders event, urging leaders to build resilience to epidemics by investing into health systems and providing sufficient public funds to ensure universal health coverage. She cautioned, quote, This becomes a question of not if, but when a deadly outbreak will emerge and threaten to become a global pandemic, end quote. To kick us off, let's talk about what universal health coverage is and why it's critical.
0: The UK became, after the Second World War, an example by making national health insurance something that was available to every British citizen. And Norway, for instance, and many others across Europe started the same principle very shortly thereafter. It means covering everyone without having financial real strain hitting you if you get sick and you have access to health services you should not have major economic problems irrespective of whether you are poor or middle income or whatever. So that whole principle that everyone should be covered and without financial burden of any sizable nature. This is the principle of universal health coverage, which is also what in the sustainable development goals all the nations have signed up to It is maybe the most important part of the health goal itself within the sustainable development goals.
1: Just to build on what Drew was saying, you know, it's so clear, you know, you have the richest country, the United States, with such a deplorable health system because they expect it to be a free market. You know, the free market will solve this problem. It doesn't. You need the public financing
2: As part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all UN member states agreed to achieve universal health coverage by 2030. Universal health coverage is built on the foundations of equity and rights. Everyone must be covered with services allocated according to people's needs and the health system financed according to people's ability to pay. Today, at least half of the global population do not receive essential health services. In addition, due to out-of-pocket spending on health, about 100 million people are pushed into extreme poverty. So where are we globally on achieving universal health coverage? And why aren't we where we need to be?
0: I believe it is really a lack of understanding and awareness about the importance. You have developing countries, I mean, in most rich, OECD countries, you have universal health coverage, with one obvious, lacking country, the US, which is, you know, a scandal in itself. However, you have countries like Thailand, well, there are several, but certainly Thailand has been illustrating, making that decision, that principle, and then following it up over years, have really made a difference to tie society and to the productivity. And they have been able, without any major setbacks or anything, to pursue universal health coverage. It is possible in developing countries, obviously, but very many of them have not put enough effort into investing in their own people. And so you have to really understand the importance of investing in people so that they are healthy and productive and will participate in your economy and in a prospering society.
2: Dr. Bruntland adds lack of accountability in political leadership as additional roadblocks that hinder our progress in achieving universal health coverage.
0: And uh, also there are geopolitical tensions in these last years, which have several sources, but they don't help when you don't have a well-functioning multilateral system that pushes the agenda forward. But first of all, people have to elect leaders that are serious, that are thinking long-term, and that are taking responsibility for the whole of their population and willing to work together across borders because we are all in this together.
1: Well, I don't have the deep expertise Of my sister grew as a doctor, as a former director general. But as it happens, when I finished my five years as High Commissioner for Human Rights, I decided to form a tiny, small NGO to work in African countries on economic and social rights. And we started and focused a lot on health, and we focused on health systems. Now, I saw that purely as a health issue, I've learned it's not just a health issue, it's an economic and political issue as well. But we started. And we started by trying to get the health ministers to have a better relationship with the finance minister and urge the importance of getting more resources for health to help strengthen the system. You know, we need to recognize that there just needs to be more encouragement and support for the economic and political importance of strengthening health systems, not just the health support.
2: But how has the public health crisis created by COVID impacted our progress on achieving universal health coverage? As reported by the World Health Organization, as of February 22nd, 2021, over a hundred million cases of COVID-19 had been confirmed in 223 countries and territories, with over 2.4 million COVID-19 related deaths reported since December 2019. Here, Dr. Brundtland talks to us about COVID-19 and how it is possibly changing our perspective on universal health coverage. I
0: think it will add to the momentum of understanding how crucial the health coverage is and how dangerous it is to leave people behind. It adds to people's awareness, and that means leaders' awareness of the broader issue of universal health coverage. But we also have to make countries aware of the preparedness which is more of a public health security perspective. When this happened, countries did not have enough personal protective gear for health personnel. So the whole idea that you can buy everything just by ordering it and getting it within a week or two. That whole perspective is not sustainable. It's not possible because when something goes wrong, you have to have a certain storage and you have to have a certain level of public health expertise. Those who do contact tracing, those who develop the tests, you know, and the whole effort to getting all this gear and getting the investments into that new vaccine. You need a new vaccine because of this new virus. And you have to take those kinds of uh, first preventive to avoid it happening. But then you have to have the direct effort, which has to be linked to a, both national preparedness, but also that the multinational system led by WHO is able to step up quickly. So, we don't lose time when something like this happens.
2: Here, we discuss how the research community came together to identify the COVID 19 virus and took next steps.
0: It took really only four weeks before it was identified and the genetic composition known so that vaccines could have been started. This time, you can be critical about several things that China was too slow in the early weeks to really inform well enough to WHO, but they did spread across the world, the identity of the virus already Mm -hmm. on the 9th of January, which is why we now have vaccines available. And it's quite fascinating. And it means that, yes, the world has also worked together. Although it has been slow in financing a number of things, real Mm -hmm. efforts have made us ready now to help give these vaccine possibilities also to developing countries as quickly as possible, although there is a lack of financing still in what is called COVAX. So we still have to do more.
2: For context, COVAX is an international effort led by the World Health Organization to ensure equitable access to vaccines in developing countries.
1: I absolutely agree that it has been extraordinary, the cooperation that has produced not one, but several vaccines that seem to be working or coming on stream. So let's thank the scientists and researchers for the wonderful work they did and the collaborations, but let's not be at all happy about the coordination nationally. There's a lot of vaccine nationalism, even in Europe, I'm sorry to say. You know, that needs to change. I think there's not a real sense of the reality that unless we get the equitable access quickly to developing countries, none of us will be secure. We're not going to solve the problem.
0: Yes, it's really a challenge to all of us. And one important aspect of making it problematic for those who really want to be helpful to spread it as quickly as possible to developing countries is this problem of this decreasing of some of these vaccines. But there are new ones now, which are coming and which are now being certified, which don't need that very special kind of logistics. So happily, I think within weeks or months now, it will really start spreading more into developing countries already this spring.
2: While initial phases of vaccine efforts are encouraging, COVID-19 has shown fragility in our global coordination efforts. The pandemic laid bare a systemic underinvestment in healthcare across the world, as Dr. Bruntland explains. After
0: the SARS experience and then H1N1 flu, swine flu, and also Ebola, there is international health regulations which are a commitment and an agreement across the world that WHO has developed. And when you look at the commitments that they have made with regard to preparedness and with regard to at both at the community, national and international level, it has been shown that people have not invested sufficiently. But when the Global Monitoring Board that I co-chaired took our first efforts in March and took contact with the World Bank and the IMF because of the lack of funding to deal with the economic and health consequences of what was already spreading across the world. It was very clear to us when the leaders of the two institutions explained to us they don't have a system that can quickly and effectively mobilize even the most important kind of resources going to deal with a crisis. We don't have the systems inside our existing institutions. Our multilateral system has to take seriously not only the Sustainable Development Goals, which they should, but they also have to take serious the security aspect of a tragedy and a pandemic like this one that could appear or become worse So we don't have
2: those yet. And that brings me to another question. So how has the shift towards health security happened at the expense of primary health care
1: worsened things for people in vulnerable situations? Well, I think there's one good example which the elders praised at the time, and it's worth mentioning again, and that's the decision of Portugal's prime minister to grant all migrants temporary residence permits in March 2020 so that they could access healthcare services. That's political leadership. We need more examples of that leadership. And it is true that if we don't address those very vulnerable in large refugee camps or whatever, and they are a source of major infection, it will come back. We have to address this in a holistic way and we have to do it in an ethical and coordinated way. And it does require that multilateral coordination in many ways. You know, there has been a kind of debate, hasn't there, Grew, in the elders about strengthening the World Health Organization in some fashion. Would you speak to that at all? I mean, it needs to have the capacity to give strong leadership because of our vulnerability to future pandemics in particular.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, instead of pointing fingers at the World Health Organization in the middle of a crisis and pandemic like uh, Trump did, we really need to strengthen and support it because it's critical for all of us. And the reality is that countries have under-resourced an organization like the WHO. It has no higher budget than a middle-sized British hospital. And it's going to serve the whole of the world. So it is under-resourced. This is no way forward. We need, really, a strong World Health Organization representing all of us, and that is fully financed. So I, I think it illustrates how the kind of privatization thinking, I, I, you know, I think trying to limit public financing, trying to limit our multilateral system, which is a common public good, it has to be financed through our common resources. It's the same kind of privatization Ideology that doesn't work in universal health coverage. It doesn't work with regard to having multilateralism effective.
2: I want to push further also on this idea of conflict. As Mary, you mentioned, a lot of vulnerabilities and injustices are exacerbated because of COVID. So, how do we better balance healthcare crisis management and primary care? in fragile states and conflict zones where, you know, to date, a lot of people are living in makeshift shelters, you know, refugee camps, displaced, internally displaced. How do we better balance crisis management in healthcare and in primary care, making sure people get their basic fundamentals while we have this much larger beast to tackle in these conflict zones specifically?
0: You are now asking the question as if... The issue is, inside some kind of health basket, should we be working on health security, preparedness, and trying to avoid this crisis continuing, or a new crisis coming? Or should we put our emphasis on primary health care? No, these are all aspects of global health coverage and global health security. They are linked together. We are dependent on both. And we cannot start balancing inside a small health budget to deal with this. You know, this is a bigger societal issue, which really calls for a much broader effort and a much more broader accountability and responsibility across government sectors. This is not only affecting health. It's affecting the economy, trade, everything is affected by this crisis and by people who are suffering from crisis or conflict situations. I don't think we should try to uh, take money from health security to give to primary healthcare. I, I, I would protest if I were prime minister, I would look at other ministers, the finance and others, and say, we have as a collegium, to find the resources to do both of
1: these. I agree and support what Gru said about not either or, it's both. But I think we do need to address the particular further vulnerability when there's a COVID on top of all the other conflict issues for vulnerable populations. And we need much more effective coordination between international agencies between national governments, humanitarian actors, donors, grassroots bottom-up organizations. And we need to do it on the basis of thinking of inclusiveness and the dignity and rights of everyone.
2: As global leaders, scientists and experts have warned us, COVID-19 is not the last pandemic. In the next few decades, we will likely see other pandemics. To prepare better, scientists continue to study and develop ways to predict future outbreaks and how they will happen.
0: At the kind of research front, people have ideas about how we can do more to follow the kind of relationships between animal societies and human societies where several of these pandemics have come from. So, I'm sure that due to future research, more can be done to prevent and to earlier detect. But I think we are not there yet, and so a new situation could come anytime.
2: According to the World Health Organization, each year, approximately one billion cases and millions of deaths can be traced back to diseases originating from animal populations. Researchers have found more than 30 bacteria or viruses that are capable of infecting humans in the past three decades. And over three quarters of those bacteria and viruses are believed to have come from animal populations.
0: You know, it could have been stuck in China. If we had been better, all of us better prepared. So there are things that can be done, but we are not out of risk and we have to all be working together to increase our preparedness in such a way that we can avoid it spreading and deal with it much more effectively than we were able to this time.
1: Well, I do agree with Gru that preparation and hopefully prevention are the best of all, you know, to avoid the kind of catastrophic impact that COVID is having all over the world and exacerbating all of these inequalities. So I think we need to sort of learn at every level. If presidents and prime ministers of countries and heads of key agencies, including financial agencies like the World Bank, IMF, etc., can all recognize how much the system failed this time. You know, it really has been devastating and has exacerbated all of these inequalities. So maybe a bit of humility, a bit of empathy, in trying to ensure that we do achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. I like the language of moving forward with equality and justice, you know, moving forward, because I, I think we don't want to go back. We want to actually go forward to a better system for our world.
2: I'll ask one final question to you, Dr. Brentland, as we close. You mentioned something which I think is really critical. Healthcare is a much larger issue that impacts all sectors so based on your leadership experience with who what type of leadership do you think we need in order to implement the strategies that both you and mary have talked about in this episode democracy is
0: what we have and what we need to try to develop and protect and it means that people basically are also responsible if they don't vote, if they don't participate in society, in their own local community, engage, if they don't look at what kind of leaders they want, and if they don't elect those leaders that have this kind of thinking and this kind of leadership policies, then we have trouble. And this is why I feel so strongly that having that dialogue with people and meeting people, explaining to people all these links that we have been talking about so that people understand that we are in this life and with this planet together, and we need responsible leadership, accountable leadership, and we need to support that kind of leadership.
2: While COVID-19 has exposed the acute vulnerabilities of our deeply interconnected and globalized world, it has also pushed us to value our shared humanity and the urgency of action needed for people and the planet. I want to thank Mary Robinson and Dr. Grew Harlem Brundtland for joining me on this episode of our new Finding Humanity podcast special series with the Elders. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, FindingHumanityPodcast.com. Before we go, I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like our show, please rate it, leave us a review, and share it to encourage other people to tune in. For other opportunities to engage with us and for additional programming around this series, Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Find underscore Humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of our producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This special series is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. And our research and policy lead is Carolina Mindica. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.